Hey, um, before we open the word together today, uh, I had a sense of something during our worship time, and I, I always want to try as best I can to be sensitive to promptings that God would give on a, on a given moment or morning or any time that we're gathered, okay? I've said this before, and I want to say it again for the benefit of those who might have never heard this before or may have forgotten. Um, I believe that God's Holy Spirit, the voice of God, is a lot like a radio station. By, by that I mean this. It's always broadcasting. KOA is in this room right now. Did you know that? The issue is, do you have a receiver? Do you have a tuner that you can hear what's being broadcast? I had a sense this morning that, that God's always speaking, okay? But I had a sense this morning that you, some of you, were hearing today. And so I say that to say this. Uh, while I'm preaching, and this won't bother me, it's uh, noise that bothers me, not visual things, okay? So as long as you don't clip your nails, I'll be fine. If you need to get up and go share with one of the pastors or one of the elders something that you feel God was speaking to you during the worship time today, would you clear that with them? And then after I'm done preaching during ministry time, if there's a sense that, yeah, God really wants the body to hear that, whatever that is, um, we'll take a few minutes and hear what the Lord might be speaking among us. Because a lot of times that has bearing an impact on the ministry that takes place. Okay? Get it? Okay, so let's do that. The other thing I want to do is, before we open the Word, um, life needs to be lived from a good, healthy perspective. Perspective is really important, isn't it? So, before we open the Word today and look at some things that might be a little tough, I want you to think of one good thing that's happened this past week. The Broncos beating the Jets Thursday night doesn't count. I want you to dig deeper than that, okay? And I want you to take, I don't know, 30 seconds and share that with somebody you're sitting near. One good thing that happened this week. If you can't think of anything good that happened to you this week, you'll probably be the focal point of the ministry time at the end of the service. So think of something, okay? 30 seconds, half a minute. Let's just do that now. tell you, it blesses my heart to hear you sharing. I think the greatest nightmare I could have as a pastor is to ask you to do that, and there's stone silence in the room. God never takes a vacation, does he? Does he? He's always up to something good. All right, today is, um, put the first slide up, please. Today's the last week of a three-week detour that we're taking in our chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study of the book of the Revelation. Uh, the detour is for the purpose of answering this very, very important question. When will the rapture occur? Now, I know some of you have been paying very, very close attention to what I've been saying. Uh, you have one of those razor-sharp minds. You have a knack for putting the, the hidden 
the obscure clues and the subliminal messages together in such a way that uh, you come to brilliant conclusions and deductions. And I know that some of you, from the subtle, oh-so-subtle clues that I've been giving the last couple weeks, know that the rapture will take place during the Macy's Thanksgiving parade (laughs) on Thursday. And it's going to look just like that. If you're visiting today, yes, I'm kidding. Okay. I picked the goofiest picture I could find on the online of what the rapture might look like. It's not going to look like that. Okay. Honest. It's not. But what is this rapture deal? Rapture comes from a Latin word, repare, that means caught up. And that whole idea of the rapture comes from a passage of scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll, we'll look at a little bit of the portion later on in the message. But it's chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that tells of Jesus coming back to this earth at some point during the cosmic struggle between the kingdom of God and all the forces and powers of evil to remove his people from these great difficulties that are going to come upon the earth in the last days. Uh, The Bible term for this great difficulty, these great difficulties, is the word tribulation. Okay, tribulation. It's defined at the bottom of the back of your bulletin where there's a chance to take some notes if you want to do that. Tribulation simply means distress or suffering resulting from oppression or persecution. It's, It's a trying experience, okay? Life as a Christian is filled with tribulation. The Bible speaks so clearly of that, as did Jesus. In this life, you are going to have tribulation. It's, it's just a part of life. But the Bible also talks about tribulation intensifying markedly in the last days. And it even uses the term, the great tribulation, to refer to and to describe a horrible seven-year period that is coming upon this earth. There's some other similar terms that are used, synonyms to this great tribulation. One of those terms is found in Revelation 3.10. The term is the hour of testing. It says there in Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, I want to make this point again. Throughout the book of the Revelation, it talks about those who dwell on the earth, those who dwell upon the earth. That is always referring to the unrighteous, to the wicked, to unbelievers. It's not referring to us. And I'll clarify that in terms of what that means here in just a minute. In terms of a quick little bit of of review, the question is, will Jesus come and rapture and remove his people before, during, or after this great tribulation, this hour of testing that is coming upon the world. In a nutshell, there are three basic views about the rapture, okay? The first one is a pre-tribulation rapture view. A pre-tribulation rapture person believes that Christians will be removed from the earth before all this bad stuff comes. At Revelation 4.1 is where they believe the rapture will happen. The next view is called a mid-tribulation rapture position, and it believes that Christians will be protected for about three and a half years, then removed at the outpouring of the wrath of God. That's somewhere between Revelation 11.15 and 16.1. When we get to that part of the scripture, you'll see why is there such a big gap there? 
You'll understand that better when we get that far into the book. Then the final position is a post-tribulation rapture view, and that is that Christians will be protected for the entire seven years and that the rapture will occur at Revelation 19.11. Why am I taking this detour? Why Why did we take three weeks out of the book to talk about this question, when will the rapture appear? occur. Again, the major reason for this is because how you view the rapture, when you think it's going to happen and who all you think is going to be involved has everything to do with how you read and interpret this book from chapter four until the end of the book at chapter 22. So I'm just trying to, to take some time and go over those. Now, I have wrestled and, and fought internally a little bit with not wanting to make this like dragging you through seminary with me, okay? I've tried to make something really complex as simple as I can, all right? I promised you last week that I would come up with a list of books that give you more detail. If you are a real student and you just love digging in and love studying, I said I'd give you a a basic list of books that you could get and do some more research. The books are on the back table behind the soundboard. If you want to grab one of these and look, there's one, two, three, four, five different books that give and talk about these various perspectives. I think they do it pretty well in terms of, yes, they are very opinionated, but they have a lot of scripture that backs up the various points that they're trying to make, okay? Well, today I want to talk about this last one. I want to talk about a post-tribulationist rapture view or belief. This is a person who who holds uh, that the rapture will be for believers, but that believers will not be removed from the world prior to the great tribulation. Rather, they will go through the great tribulation with an amazing amount of grace and strength given them from God. Now, I want to be really clear. I've never read one post-tribulationist who has this burning desire to be here for those seven years. These people are not morbid. They are not masochists, okay? They just read the scripture and believe that it says that's how it's going to be. See, a pre-tribulationist would say in Revelation 4.1, there's a spot there where Jesus speaks to the apostle John and says, come up here. And I'm going to show you what's going to take place. Pre-tribulation rapture people believe that is when Jesus raptures the church. And they're not mentioned from that point forward in the rest of the book. Somebody who's a post-tribulation rapture believer believes that that is not a picture of the church being raptured. Rather, John had an experience in that moment, much like the apostle Paul had. Paul's experience is referred to in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, where it says, and Paul's speaking of himself here. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Those folks believe that what happened there to Paul also is what happened to John. And it was both of them were for the express purpose of God giving them revelation of something incredibly important as to what was going to happen. A post-tribulationist also sees a great, huge difference between the tribulation or the great tribulation and the wrath of God. Now, that's a really important point I'm going to elaborate on here in a couple of minutes, okay? Um, They believe that the church, the elect, believers in Jesus, will be spared from the wrath of God. And folks, that's an enormous deal in understanding this particular perspective and point of view. So let me talk about that for just a little bit. 
in the Greek language, the word for wrath, there's two different words. One of the words is the word thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S. And it means a violent outburst of anger. And it's, it's talking about the action that is produced by this outburst of anger, okay? In Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17, it says this. Then the kings of the earth, there's that of the earth Statement again, like dwellers of the earth. It's talking about unbelievers. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath. Father, son and Holy Spirit has come and who is able to stand This word thumos is used 18 times in the New Testament and nine of them are in the book of the Revelation. And again, it's always on those who dwell upon the earth, the dwellers of the earth, the kings of the earth. Always again synonymous with unbelievers or the wicked or non-Christian people, okay? The other New Testament Greek word for for the word wrath is the Greek word horge, okay? Thumos is the action Horge means a settled state of wrath. It's, it's the judgment or the, the verdict itself, okay? What these people deserve. That word occurs 27 times in the New Testament. And I don't think the Bible could be any clearer in terms of, of separating this out for us, okay? The wicked, the wicked are the ones who are destined for the wrath of God. Now, both in terms of judgment and verdict and sentence, but also in terms of the actual punishment that comes with it. This is for the wicked. Does that make you glad? Not glad for the wicked, but glad that ain't you. I'm telling you. Listen to what Jesus said, John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That sentence will be pronounced and that violent outburst of anger will be meted out to them. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then finally, back out of the book of the Revelation 14, 9 and 10. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he, will also, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, I want you, I want you to know something. I, I am... So excited. I wish I could compress this whole book down into one week because there's so much stuff I want to tell you. I want you to see you are going to be astounded as you watch this play out over the next weeks. Okay, it's it will blow you away. I found myself as I've been studying for this for the past several months partially in preparation for Haiti, I found myself as I would read and study time and time and time again going this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. The way that the perfect justice and mercy of God go hand in hand. It'll, it'll just, it'll astound you when, when you see this thing unfold. 
you know, we try and live in that place where we exercise justice and mercy in a good tension, a good balance. How many of you feel like you do that very well? You don't see my hand going up. And yet you'll just be astounded when you see how this thing unfolds and how you'll, you'll see the mercy of God, even in the midst of his wrath being poured out. It's, it's like nothing else. Okay. I'm getting off track. So who's destined for the wrath of God? Who is it again? Who? The wicked. Okay. On the other hand, okay. And the Bible is equally clear. Believers are spared from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9 says, Much more than having, been, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, through Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 says, And we're to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus. I'm telling you, when we unpack this together over the next bit of time um, and you see what's coming, you will be so, so, so very glad that the wrath of God is not going to be your experience if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus. And I also hope as we go through this series, because it's been doing it in my heart and I want it to do it in yours also, that there's a whole lot of get right with God moments that we all experience in the process. I'm not talking about you're, you're not a Christian. Maybe you are not a Christian and this could be the day that you need to ultimately get right with God. But I'm telling you, as I see what's coming, it's doing, it's stirring something really good in me to make me want to live on a shorter and shorter and shorter leash so to speak, to continue to walk in this get right and stay right with God position. Amen. You know, Jesus is coming back for a bride that it says is pure and spotless. And there are times when I look at the church today, I think John Wimber is the first guy I ever heard say this. Jesus is coming for a bride that's pure and spotless. But when you look at the bride of Christ today, she looks like she's standing on a corner in a mini skirt and a tube top. Funny, but not funny, huh? So a part of God's intention in this is to get us to that place of being writer and writer with him in terms of our lives and our walk with him. So the Bible's pretty clear about the wrath of God. It's for who? The wicked and we will be spared. Tribulation, however, is a very, very different story. Tribulation appears in the New Testament in two different forms, a noun form and a verb form. The noun form is thlipsis. The verb form is thlebo. Now, how many Bronco fans here in the room? That should be a very easy word for you to remember, thlebo, because it sounds like Tebow. And many of you are rejoicing that Tebow has been inflicting Flebo on the Raiders and the Jets and maybe the Chargers next week, huh? So you should not have a hard time remembering this word, right? Flebo sounds like Tebow. Okay. It took everything in me to bring myself to share this today. Steve Town, can you feel my pain? It's because I'm a selfless pastor that I would do this and help you like this. Oh. 
I just, there needs to be silence, please. I hear all your little comments out there. So, totally different word, all right? Tribulation is a different story. This word, or these two words, either uh, slebus or thlebo, appear 51 times throughout the New Testament. 47 of the 51 refer to the tribulation that will be endured by the saints. Not by the wicked, but by the saints. From normal, generic stuff to specific, more intense stuff that we'll see as we work our way through this book. Well, let me just read for you some scripture out of Matthew chapter 24, okay? This is one of the times when Jesus was asked, so what is gonna, what's it going to be like at the end? What are going to be the signs of your coming again? All right, and so this is a pretty lengthy portion I want to read to you, but I want you to listen for tribulation and tribulations and great tribulation as I read through this for you, okay? Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Does that sound like today? (sighs) But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Finally, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, again, totally depends on your view of the rapture. If you subscribe to a pre-tribulationist view that the church is going to be out of here before this kind of stuff happens, then you would believe that Jesus' word here is to the Jews. He's speaking to the Jews, not to the church, because the church is gone. If you're a post-tribulationist, You would believe that, yes, this does include the Jews, but it's also talking about the church. That when Jesus speaks of the elect, he's talking to both groups. Now, uh, I need to say to you, I am a post-tribulation rapture person. That's, that's what I believe, and I absolutely understand that that colors how I view this book. I'm going to work with everything in me as we go through it to present the options, okay, and not just say, well, this is what I believe, and can you believe anybody else believes something different? I know there are people a lot smarter than me that have different opinions than I do, and uh, that's, that's fine. That's okay. I'm going to try and be as even-handed as I can be. But that's where I land in this, and I'll tell you why in, in just a little bit, Okay. When I read scriptures like this, I think and believe that the tribulation or the great tribulation spoken of here is the wrath, small w, small w, the wrath, the anger of Satan and the Antichrist and the wicked who dwell on the earth against God's people. 
All right? The wrath of God is something very different than this, but that other side has a great intention to pour out wrath and anger against God's people. And I want you to know this as well, church. The wrath of God that is coming, there is no comparison in terms of its severity and how much worse it's going to be than any tribulation. I don't care how great the tribulation might be. The wrath of God, when we get there in the book, is talking about the seven bowls of judgment that are poured out, okay? Revelation chapter 15 and and 16. Uh, It could also perhaps include the seven trumpets, which lead into the seven bowls, depending on how you interpret the book. But again, the wrath of God is what the wicked will experience. The righteous will be spared if they're still here. Now, that really poses a question. How could they possibly still be here? I mean, this is catastrophic. This, what's talked about in chapters 15 and 16 and on, it's, it's just it's horrendous. How could it possibly be that believers could still be here? Well, I believe that when it talks about, as we read in Revelation 3.10, that, that believers will be spared from this hour of testing, I believe it means that will be here or they'll be here. We may be dead by then. I don't know when this is going to happen, but they'll be protected from this thing. I don't think it means that they'll be removed altogether. Part of the reason I believe that is there's a picture and a pattern that I see in the old Testament and book of Corinthians says those things were written as an example to us. Okay. There are types and patterns in terms of how God relates and deals with people, his people that has a consistency from the old Testament to the new. I see a picture. I see a type and a pattern when I look at God's dealing with the children of Israel when they were in Egypt. Okay. I see when uh, God sent plagues upon the Egyptians, the first few of those things were things that the Israelites experienced as well, kind of tribulation-like. The plagues worsened, got more severe as they unfolded. They got to a point where there was a supernatural protection over the children of Israel in the midst of these things being poured out. Until finally the last one was when they were taken out of Egypt into the promised land. I see that as a picture of the unfolding of history and what the last days are going to look like. Exodus chapter 9 verses 24 through 26 says this. And this is one of the plagues, okay? So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very severe. Such had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. I think that's a picture of what it's going to be like in the end times. And rather than getting all hung up going, well, how could God do that? I don't know, but I know God's aim is really good. Right? So let's not get wrapped around. How could he do that? Believe me, he could do that. You ever been in a room with somebody when, when, um, I don't know, somebody does something wrong and everybody goes, Oh, watch out. The lightning might strike. As long as you're not touching them, you're fine. God's aim's that good, okay? This is like that, folks. I really do believe it. And then the ultimate final plague that came was the death angel. 
Remember? And if you didn't have the blood of the lamb marking you, (laughs) wait till you see that one in the revelation. If you didn't have the blood of the lamb marking you, then the wrath of God in that moment was poured out and the firstborn all died. But if you were covered by the blood, you made it through and you made it out. You see, that I think is a picture of what the future is going to look like. So when it comes to my view of the rapture and when it's going to happen, I'm, I'm a post-tribulationist and I, I want to be up front. And the, the reason is I personally see more evidence and more scripture that seems to point to this view. And I see a consistent theme and pattern that plays out from cover to cover in this book, the Bible, regarding tribulation and wrath. Okay? Let me give you a couple examples. In Luke chapter 21, verse 36, Jesus said, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. In the book of the Revelation, Jesus said this, because we've looked at it already, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so again, folks, the question is, okay, does this escape being kept from something? Does that mean we're totally gone? We're totally removed? Or does that mean that we're protected while we're in the midst of something that we kind of come out from within something? Okay. It's, it's like escaping from prison to escape from prison means you were in prison. I think it's more like that in terms of what The Bible says, and here's one of the primary reasons I believe that out of the mouth of Jesus in John 17 verses 15 and 16, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I think there's just a sense of this supernatural, sovereign, almost unbelievable protection that we will experience, or the church, I shouldn't say we, because that might sound like I think it's any day now, and I don't know. But the church will, will live under this, much like Israel did in Egypt, under this sovereign, supernatural protection of God as this whole thing unfolds. Okay. A um, couple of things that... Um, I want to say as I wrap this up, a couple of uh, things that the post-tribulationists and pre-tribulationists view very, very differently. A pre-tribulationist sees Christ's return as a two-stage event. He will come for the saints and rapture them out of this world before the great tribulation. And then after those seven years, he will come again with the saints. So he takes them out. There's the seven-year gap when things just get really nasty. And then he comes back with them. A post-tribulationist sees this more as a singular fluid event, okay? They would interpret Mark 13, verses 19, and then 24 through 27 as pointing more to that. It says in Mark 13, For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. That's the great tribulation and the wrath of God being poured out. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest ends of the earth to the farthest ends of heaven. 
Again, a pre-tribulationist would say that's Israel. A post-tribulationist would say that's all believers. So the, the great tribulation and the outpouring of wrath and then Jesus returns looks like he raptures the church and then pretty much right away comes back to earth fairly quickly. That, that it happens after those seven years, okay? Um, part of the reason why, 1 Thessalonians 4, I said we'd go there for just a quick minute. This is this, the scripture that talks about this rapture. It's, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That meeting him in the air, it's the word apontesis. And I'm not going to bore you with a lot of Greek, but it just means to meet someone. And it's used two other times in scripture. Again, in context, I think it points to this fluidity of the event because when it's used in Matthew chapter 25, I referenced those up there. You can look them up later. It's the story of the wise virgins versus the foolish virgin virgins. And the, the wise virgins are the one who went out to meet the bridegroom But in the story, they went out to meet him, but came right back into the reception, the wedding reception with him. The other one is in Acts chapter 28, and it's a story of Paul approaching Rome, and a welcoming party comes out to meet him. But they didn't just sit down for a long period of time and then go back into Rome. They went out to meet him and turned right around, welcomed him, and came right back to Rome. Both contexts there seem to indicate this going out to meet someone means you go out to meet him, but you come right back to the the desired place place. I think that is, is the picture of what we'll see. A pre-tribulationist also sees the resurrection of the dead happening in three stages instead of two. The, the righteous dead at the rapture before the great tribulation. And then at the end of that time, those who are saved and martyred out of the great tribulation, mostly Jews, and then the unrighteous dead that will be resurrected right before they stand before the great white throne of judgment in Revelation 19. A post-tribulationist sees that as two phases. All the righteous dead will be brought back to life when he comes again. No seven-year, no three-and-a-half-year gap. And then the rest of the unrighteous dead just like in the other view. Another key difference is that a pre-tribulationist believes that these seven years are primarily about God's dealing with Israel. It's the restoration of his people. It's about them, not us. Yeah, God's also got some dealing with the unsaved world during that time, but the focal point in terms of of the elect and believers is Israel. Whereas a post-tribulationist thinks that um, these seven years are about God's dealing with Israel and with the church as well as the unsaved. Uh, post-tribulationists doesn't see this as either or. They see much more a both and. Like Romans 11 talks about uh, Israel being the olive tree and the church being grafted in, but it doesn't replace God's plan or purpose for his people. That plan's never going to change. Now, I absolutely believe that Israel holds an amazingly important role and place in God's heart and in his plan of redemption and how the whole thing is going to unfold in the end times. They're his people. Amen. And he's got a plan for them. Doesn't exclude us. It includes us. And I'm grateful for that. I mentioned before that I I think there's great likelihood that the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, that old Testament sacrificial system is going to be reinstituted. 
I believe that that will be for the purpose of once again pointing them to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of those sacrifices. That even as that happens again and and in the process of what unfolds in him coming again, there's going to be this putting together of the fact that he is the mediator of a new and better covenant. He is the one that fulfills every one of these sacrifices for sin once and for all and forevermore. And somehow God's going to use that. My own personal belief, this is a little side item. I believe that as God's plan for Israel unfolds and as, as the world tries to take them out, because of God's inordinate love for the Muslim world, as well as the Jewish world and uh, the Gentile world, I almost call them the Christian world, but there's a lot of people that don't really fit the Christian category. But because of God's inordinate love for the Muslim world, as they continue to try and thwart the nation of Israel, one of the conclusions is going to be that Allah has no power. That this, this Yahweh, this God, he's the one. And I believe God is going to use that. You see, even as wrath is poured out, even as tribulation comes, God's heart is always for mercy and salvation. That makes my jaw hit the floor when I think about that. But that's ultimately what I think God has in mind. They can fight against Israel till the cows come home. And it will lead them to the conclusion that the God of Israel is the God. Allah has no power. And it's for a redemptive salvation purpose. That's the heart of God. You'll see that from cover to cover in this book as we continue to open it up. And I think you'll be amazed, kind of like I am. There's another reason why I think uh, post-tribulation rapture view is is the one that I subscribe to. And uh, that is, through all the research I've done, I found out that there were very, very few, if, if any, major, substantial early church fathers and writers who believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. They all believed in a post-tribulation rapture uh, for the first several hundred years and, be, and beyond. Actually, it wasn't until like the, the early 19th century that pre-tribulationism even became popular. Now, I get this, okay? I, I get a pre-tribulation rapture person saying, why, why would God put people, his people through this? We're children of grace. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. Um, with all the wonderful promises that God gives us in his word about caring for us and delivering us and providing for us, etc., etc., why would we have to go through this judgment upon a world that rejected his son? I get that, Okay. That's a great question. But it takes me back to why do Christians die of cancer? Why do bad things happen to God's people? And I don't understand that. But until this thing is all said and done, until it's all over, we have to wrestle with the tension of we live in a fallen world. And the promises of God will not be 100% fulfilled and completed until Jesus comes again. And so rather than getting all wrapped around, oh, I don't understand why and how come and blah, blah. I think, I think it's what Amy said this morning. We need to focus on God and his goodness, not all the things in this world that aren't quite as good as God is or as God would have them to be. There's a tension there. And some days it drives me crazy. And it's a short drive, okay? You can almost walk from here. But that just seems to be the way that it works to live in a fallen world. Hmm.
Okay, I'll wrap up with this. One of the criticisms of a post-tribulationist view on all this is they seem vague. They, they refuse to nail things down, okay? Pre-tribulation rapture people have dates, not specific dates of return, but they've, they've got a system and a structure that just seems to be, wow, that's amazing. Post-tribulationists are not quite that way. I personally see that as a strength, not a weakness, because there's a fluidity and a flexibility in reading this book, okay? I mean, it's, it's a mystery. Not a puzzle to be solved, but it's a mystery, and it's filled with symbolism. And it's, it's filled with tensions that are built into this very book. I mean, if you're like me, and you like to be real linear and sequential, I mean, you read this thing, and on the one hand, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And our response is, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Says that a couple times. But then you read through the book and you find that the martyrs who are around his throne, they're saying, how long? How long, O oh Lord? Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Hurry up. Do you see what's built into this book? Mystery, tension, things that we as, as best as we can understand the book, we're going to try to. But we have to live in this place that says, the book itself says I'm coming quickly. How long is this going to take you? I resonate around those martyrs around that throne, don't you? Excuse me? Is your watch still working, Lord? How long? It takes us to this point, And with this, I want to close. However long it takes... I was talking with Bill this morning. However long it takes to get the last person on the bus, huh? That's how long it'll take. Because the book starts with this, and the book has this, go to the next slide, has this in it over and over and over and over again. This is the first verse of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must, which must shortly take place. How, how long is that? I don't know. But we can, we can rest in the fact that there is certainty and there is sovereignty that controls the events in the days in which we live. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay? So, we're going to finish off here with a time of ministry. If you need prayer for anything, any of the elders or pastors have anybody come and share anything with you in terms of what they feel like God's hearing? Did you get anything? All right. Well, um... Amy, would you play a little bit? Would you all stand, please? Uh, if you need prayer this morning before we go, I would encourage you uh, to come and get that. Ministry team, why don't you make your way forward? Uh, we've got some folks who won't just come to the altar and wonder, now what? We've got some folks who will be happy to, uh, kind of a privilege, actually, to, to pray with you, to find out kind of what's going on, what's your story, what do you need? And uh, they'll pray with you. And these folks know how to pray, okay? So don't hold back. If you're here today, I, I don't care if it has anything or nothing to do with the message today. Uh, God's here. And he's speaking. And he desires to, to touch you in any spot, any place where you need him to. So we're just going to wait before him for a few minutes. If you, uh, you got something? As the light was shining through the window here this morning, and it is bright today. Um, at a certain point, as we were singing um, the exalt song, I exalt him, it shined upon us. And uh, they observed this as we sang, I exalt him. 
The sun was shining brilliantly through the stained glass windows and shining on his people. We exalt him and our focus and face is upon him. We actually have eyes to see his light. The lamp unto our feet, the light unto our, our path. It seems to fit all that has been said this morning from Amy's word to us through all that Kent has preached and taught us today uh, as we exalt him and wait upon him even now. So this is good. This is good. I believe the Lord is saying to us this morning through all that's taken place, come unto me, all ye, everyone that is weary and heavy laden. You are not alone. I am with you, says the Father. And all it takes is for us to receive. I remember a message that Ken preached in the past um, about opening the gift. You know, it's nice when we have a nice wrapped gift that we're handed, but it remains just that until we tear off the wrapping and the scotch tape and everything and bust it open and look in and realize what the gift is. And the Father wants more of that for us today. Now, stirring. Some of you, it's stirring in you right now. I mean, some of you, your heart is beating fast. Some of you are, you've been resisting for a while. And this is not at all a condemning word. It is not at all. But it is, but it is the truth that you've been pushing away because you're thinking, what's going to happen to me if I finally let down my guard? And so the Father's saying, trust me, try me, give me an opportunity. So Father, we just, we say yes to you. Yes to you in Jesus' name. We are looking forward to you coming, but we're a little rattled right now, Father, as we think about the prospects of those issues that we still want and need to deal with. And so we just invite invite you through the power of your Holy Spirit now to invade. Even if it's in your seat and you don't come forward, receive. Open the hands of your heart and receive. It's that simple. Come, Lord, now and just move within us and minister life and love. Your life, your love. And Father, I ask in Jesus' name for tangible results and representation of your power this week of your love, of your healing, of your hope. More, Lord. Just give them more now. Break in. Break through. Let's have some of the other elders and leaders in the church. We're having a good response, so come on up. and, And even if you're not on duty today specifically, come on up and join in praying for these folks. Thank you for what you're doing, Father.
we just bless your holy name. We love you. Thank you so much for loving us. One final word. I think I just just got hit with it. Some are dealing with the fact that you think you're still the wicked. If you're in Jesus, you're not, no matter how you feel. You are a free man, a free woman in Jesus by his work and his shed blood. And it's time to step out of the works and the bondage that has held you for years or whatever amount of time. Step out and walk like a free person in him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If that is you, I would invite you to come down and just let these prayer team members bless that and call it forth. Because it's that freedom that will cause you to walk in purity and victory. And, and we always think freedom means, oh my gosh, we're just going to go crazy sin-wise. It's 180 degrees from that. It's as you walk and understand the freedom you've been given that you walk towards Jesus and become more like him. And I know that's the cry of all of our hearts to be more like him. So Ken, final prayer. Come on, you do it now. Just close it up. Well, Lord, we're, we're grateful today. We're thankful today for your word. And uh, even, even in a message about the wrath of God and the judgment that's coming upon this world, Lord, we are going to see so crystal clearly that even in your wrath being poured out, your heart's desire in doing that is that the wicked, that unbelievers would bow their knee to you and will finally come to realize who you are and their great need for you. Um, we pray that we see that in greater fullness in our lives, in the lives of those we love and care about who don't know you, who aren't walking with you, but that we, we see God this great victory of the King of Kings come not just to save us but to do a great redemptive work throughout the whole wide world because that's your heart and we celebrate that today we rejoice in that truth today because it's such a sign, such a demonstration of your ultimate goodness Lord your heart is not us against them, you against them your heart ultimately is for everyone and your great desire is that all would come, not all will, but that all would come to saving faith in Christ. I pray that we would increase in our, our desperation for ourselves and the heart compassion we have for the lost. We would understand that time is short, even if it's a long time, time is short for some people, how long they'll still be here. And help us live in light of that truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen bless you. I just want you to have a wonderful Thanksgiving and to keep your eyes on Jesus this week, okay? Because he'll see you through not only this week, I have it on good authority. He'll see us through to the end. Amen. Okay, bless you. Have a great week.